0: We'll open up to Psalm 124, Psalm 124. We are going to be looking at three psalms this morning. We're picking up the pace in the series so that we'll be on track to end uh, the Psalms of Ascent before the end of the summer or by the end of the summer. How many of you watched the Olympic opening ceremonies this week? Some of you, not a lot. I, I watched them. My wife loves the opening ceremonies. Notice I said my wife loves the opening ceremonies. I, uh, I don't know. After a while, they all start looking the same to me. I'm sorry. That's very culturally insensitive of me, but um, not my thing. But how many of you saw this? Did you see this? This is a Bolivian athlete. I believe he's a swimmer. I looked up his name. I thought that would make me look really knowledgeable. And I took one look at his name and said, no way. I'm not trying to, <laughs> not even going to go there. That will just have the contrary effect, so. Uh, But he's a swimmer, and and he entered the uh, arena in the Parade of Nations. He enters in, and he just looks around. And I don't know if the camera happened to be on him or they saw this, but he just bursts into tears. And unfortunately, on social media, he is becoming the crying boy of Bolivia. That's what they have. I know, isn't that horrible? But really, when you look at it, and the announcer, I wish I could say it word perfect, but the announcer, whoever it was, just summed it up so perfect. He said, look at that. That right there just sums up the emotions of what these athletes are going through and what this moment means for them. Now think about that for a second. Think of everything in this man's past that has led him as a swimmer to be at this point. Even, I imagine, the worst swimmers in the Olympics have given up, and I'm not saying he is, I have no idea, okay? That was probably wrong. But has, they've given up so much. Think of all the hard work they've done to get to this point. And so in that moment, I imagine there's at least a little bit of that training session and that time and that pain and that injury and working through this and, and the cost and all of it leading up to walking into the stadium as an Olympic athlete. And then you think, in that moment, I, I don't know where they wait. I don't know if it's off-site or if it's in some back room. I can't imagine they all fit in a back room. But somehow they're somewhere else waiting to come out. We see the big extravaganza and, and the party and, and all the dancing and the music. We see all that. Maybe they see it on a TV screen somewhere. But for them, I imagine that moment really becomes real when that they walk through the curtain or door whatever it is and they see the stadium and they see the flood of athletes coming in and they hear the music and they just get that moment, that moment in that present time for them of, I'm a part of something so much bigger than me. And to just take in that moment. And he was overwhelmed by it. But I think there's another aspect too. I wonder how many of them, as they're walking around the track to wherever they walk to, how many of them are thinking, okay, now tomorrow I have to get up and I've got to go swim. Or next week I have to get up and participate in my event or whatever it is. And they're looking to the future, the next 13 days, I think it is, of the Olympics, much shorter for some of them as, as their event takes place, and they're thinking, I don't know what these moments take. So here they are celebrating the Olympics, and they're thinking, I'm scared to death. What is my Olympics going to be like? Today, we're going to be looking at Psalms 124, 125, and 126 as we continue this series uh, of a long obedience in the same direction. And we're walking through these psalms of ascent. Psalms that we believe were used by the pilgrims of Israel, the people of Israel that three times a year were commanded by God to leave their homes, journey to Jerusalem for the particular festivals. At these festivals, they would worship, they would celebrate, they would offer a sacrifice, and they would declare their faithfulness, their obedience to their God. They would remember the covenant that he had made with them, and they would celebrate being the people of God together. But as they walk, every year I imagine there was a looking back in the past, there was a thinking about what was going on right now, and there was looking forward to the future, maybe in great uncertainty. And these Psalms really work in that direction. I've called them trail markers, the past, the present, and the future, markers along the way of our lives. And we always have these three things in our life, our past, our present, our future, So we're going to start in Psalm 124. I encourage you to open it up in your Bibles uh, in front of you. I'll put it up on the screen just in case. but I think it's good to have God's Word open in front of you. There's There are Bibles in the pews if you'd like to use them. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, take those home with you. That's our gift to you. Let's look at Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, the Lord had not been on our side. When people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. This looks back to the past deliverance of God. And if we're going to look back into the past deliverance, we have to see that in the past, especially in this psalm, but I think in our own lives as well, there are past hazards, there are past threats, there are things in the past that we look at and say, oh, that was tough. Now, I'm not sure exactly what was going on here for the Israelites. Could be many things. Let me offer up a couple The exodus is one. They looked into their past and they saw a time enslaved in Egypt, helpless, hopeless, and God stepped into history in a a miraculous way, delivered them and saved them, took them through the Red Sea, through the desert, brought them into the promised land. Not an easy journey, but saved them. There are times in the Psalms that David looks back and he looks back to maybe running from King Saul, while David was waiting to be king, he had been anointed by king, but the present king, King Saul, was chasing him, trying to kill him time after time after time. David writes about being delivered from enemies, being surrounded by enemies, and yet God delivering him and rescuing him. Another time in the nation of Israel was when they were taking, taken into captivity. They had been unfaithful to God, and he, said, he warned them time after time after time, and he said, finally, okay, this is where I will meet with you. I will take you away from your home so that you might return to me. And they look back on that time of great hardship, but they also see that God brought them back home. And so there are these threats, these difficulties. And look at the language of the psalm. They talk about a flood. They talk about other people and their anger nearly swallowing them alive. These torrents that are sweeping over them, raging waters that could have swept them away. There is a real threat here. When you look back in your life, I'm guessing that you see times. Maybe the time is right now. But you see times when you say, man, I almost lost it there. I almost got to that point. I couldn't go on. There are real threats that we go through. And so we turn to the Lord and we look for deliverance. And hopefully, as you look back in your past, you can see times that God delivered you. But as we look at deliverance, I think it's important to understand that deliverance is not avoidance. Deliverance is not avoidance. Notice these bad things did happen in the psalm. They were attacked. They were at the point where they felt like they were going to be swept away, where they were potentially going to lose it and couldn't go on. Things had gotten really, really bad. They aren't praising God because God kept them from all bad things happening. They are praising God because when the bad things happened, He kept them from being overwhelmed. Deliverance is not avoidance. Deliverance is more about God's presence and his plan through difficulties rather than removing the difficulty. This is important because As I've said often, and will continue to say, I believe one of the greatest threats to Christianity today has nothing to do with the White House. It has nothing to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with marriage. It has nothing to do with gender. Quite frankly, I believe one of the greatest dangers to Christianity today is the false teaching that God owes it to you to make you happy and healthy and wealthy. So many churches are being destroyed from the inside out because of that false teaching. Don't get me wrong. The rest of it is important. It's serious. We need to deal with it. But as Christians, so often we're blinded to things in our own midst. And this heresy is spreading like wildfire among churches. Churches are growing huge. Now, don't get me wrong. There are large churches that are incredibly faithful. We have some in our area. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Just because you're big doesn't mean you're a heretic, okay? But there are people getting very wealthy. There are areas of Christian bookstores that are filled with books, that are filled with this heresy. There are things being broadcast on Christian radio that just drip with the heresy that if you love God, he will help you to avoid all problems in your life. Boy, I want to sign up for that if it's true. There's just one really big problem with that. It's nowhere in here. It's not God's word. Think about Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Psalm 23, probably one of the most famous psalms, the, sh- the Shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Now think about that for a second. Did he say, I will never go through the darkest valley because God is always with me? No. He says, I know there will be times I will go through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, some translations have. He says, in that moment of complete and utter despair, I will remember you are with me. God's deliverance, God's power, God's wisdom is to walk through and use those times in our lives for our good and his glory. Does he remove them? in his plans sometimes, and help us to avoid them? Sure. I guess there are times when we get to heaven, we'll look back and say, wow, I didn't know that God kept that from happening. And I think that'll be a, new, a neat perspective. But in the meantime, so often we think when bad things happen that God is no longer with us. And this is the problem with that heresy, that bad teaching. If we believe that it is God's job to keep all bad things from happening then the moment a bad thing happens, we give up on God because we believe he has failed us. When the history of his people of Israel, the history of his people in the church, both Old and New Testament, and I would say church history ever since then, is a testimony that God often leads his people into difficult times for his glory. But whenever he does that, he is right there with us. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says in verse 15, My prayer is not that you, God the Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How often in the midst of difficulty do we shut the Bible and put it on the shelf? We say, well, God's not being faithful to me. I'm not going to be faithful to him just doesn't really apply to me right now. I'm not feeling it, so I'm not going to read it right now. And Jesus says, no, in those times of difficulty, what we need the most is the washing, the renewal, the cleansing, the holiness of the very Word of God. His truth. We need to know the God who is present with us. And so, deliverance is not avoidance. We also need to understand that the help is in the name of the Lord. Verse 8, our help is is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They didn't look back in their past and say, wow, we were amazing in that moment. Look at what we did. That Egypt thing, we totally had that covered. We were fine. We worked it all out. No, they looked at Egypt and went, whoa, we were lost. That was all God. All God. David did not take credit for the deliverance that he experienced in his life. We should not take credit for the deliverance we experience in our lives. Our help is in the name of the Lord. But saying it is in the name of the Lord does not mean it's some magical formula. If you you just say a specific word or you say it in a certain way, well, then God has to show up and do things. That's not the God we serve. Help in the name of the Lord is to say, I believe in everything that God is. I may not know it or understand everything that He is because He's beyond my understanding, but I will trust Him. And I will depend upon Him and nothing else. I will not look to myself I will not look to the world. I will not even look to the people around me for my ultimate help. My help is in the name of the Lord. The difference between despair and hope, defeat and deliverance, is the presence of God. And I hope that you can look back on times in your life and say, that is a time that the Lord rescued me. That is a time He saved me. And I know from looking back in my life, those times that I can most see that God delivered me I didn't see it in that moment so if you're going through a time right now where you're saying oh this is just garbage God doesn't do this look at what I'm going through look how awful it is trust look back farther see who God is see what he has done and if you have nothing else in your life to look at no past deliverance to look to I would tell you two things. One, I would look a little harder and I would get to know God a little better because his work is there and I pray he gives you eyes to see it. But the other is this, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you see nothing else of God's past faithfulness, look at the time that he made it possible to take your sins off of you, put it on his son and put his son to death in your place. That is God's past faithfulness that nothing in this world can take away from us. We always have the deliverance of the cross. And so we move then from this trail marker of God's past faithfulness to now the present security that we have in God. Look at Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. Look at the security they talk about in verses 1 and 2. Now again, as these travelers would come near to Jerusalem, They're coming from maybe some country villages, maybe even some built-up cities, but nothing like Jerusalem. And as they get near, they're walking up this incline because Jerusalem's up there on kind of a mountaintop or a hilltop. And Jerusalem is surrounded by these other mountains. It was a perfect place for a strong city. And so here they are coming from places where they know bandits were threatening them. Uh, If a foreign army came through, they were susceptible to that. And they're walking to this place and they're saying, wow, look at this city. I think it's not unlike that athlete walking into the Olympic Stadium. They're walking into Jerusalem and saying, wow, look at this place. This is amazing. We get to be here. Look at the security of the walls and the mountains. But I love how they add on to that. As the mountains surround Jerusalem so the Lord surrounds His people, both now and forevermore. They knew that the security of God's people was not ultimately about mountains. God's security for you is not ultimately about the past blessings in His life. It is about His presence in your life. It's about His will and His plan holding you firm through the grip of His grace through Jesus Christ. I was brought up, or let me switch that, I learned as I was being brought up that following God was kind of like walking a tightrope. Now, I say that very carefully because I I want to be careful. I'm not saying I was taught that, I think it might have been my misconception. I'm not really sure. But I always felt like walking through life as a Christian, especially as a young Christian, was this dangerous thing. Be careful that you don't slip. Be careful you don't fall off. Because God is this mean guy up there, and he has this clipboard with all the check boxes of all the possible sin and all the conditions that might happen. And he's just up there watching. I got you. I've got my eye on you. And the moment you slip, he checks the box. This is the, the thing he's supposed to smite you with. And boom, you're smitten or smote whatever the past tense of that is. Don't raise your hand, but do you ever think of God that way? Like He's just out to get us? Scripture talks about the Lord being a strong tower. It talks about the Lord in this, this passage here being this fortress that surrounds us. We sing the song, a mighty fortress is our God. Do we have a picture of our security in Jesus Christ that is not a God that is out to get us and to smite us for every wrong turn, but a God that has reached into history through the power of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on the cross and resurrection and grabbed a hold of us and is holding us fast. And we are secure in His grip. We are secure. Even in the midst of difficulty. We see in verse 3 here, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Why would they say that? Why in the midst of talking about their security, why would they refer to bad leadership? Because they went through times of bad leadership. They were going to Jerusalem to worship. They were seeking to be faithful. But let's be honest, Israel did not always have the greatest king. There were a lot of screw-ups in the palace in Jerusalem. Not the best people. And they knew there were times that foreign armies would come through and they would rule over Israel. And that was not a good situation either. But in those those difficulties, they still held on to the security of who God is and what His promises were for them. They held on to the fact that God was with them. But there's also a recognition of a danger there. It says at the end of verse 3, "...for then the righteous might use their hands..." To do evil. This is a sobering thought. As I understand this, what it's saying is that if unrighteousness remains in control of a land, it is very possible for God's people to begin to give into that unrighteousness. There's a danger in slipping into that. There's a danger in being overwhelmed or just being numb to it and start saying, well, if this is what we have to do to live, if this is what we have to do to stay alive in this society as a church or as the people of God or to succeed as an individual, if this is what we have to do, then it's okay. At least we're not as bad as the culture. There's a danger in that. And so they're crying out to the Lord saying, we trust in you and we trust that this present situation of unrighteousness will not remain. What a great perspective to have. Have you heard the phrase on the wrong side of history? I'm so sick of that phrase, because those people don't know history whatsoever. You see, the beginning of history, as I understand it, history is the record of everything that has ever happened. So you have to go all the way back to the beginning of God. And there is no beginning of God. So at the beginning of history, you have God reigning eternally on his throne. And if I'm using my own way of talking, at some point, God created the heavens and the earth. And then our history began. But there's an infinity of history before that. Then we have this blip in time called our recorded history. And it's just like a speck. It's nothing really uh, of, of from Adam and Eve until the present day, including all the movements for and against God in between. And then you have the time when Christ is going to come back and he's going to rule on his throne eternally. That means forever without end. See, that's the other part of history. So you have these two massive sections of history, which are really infinite in which God reigns eternally present on the throne, on earth, and all things go according to the will. you have this teeny tiny little speck that we're in right now where people think they're in control. And they want to say we're on the wrong side of history for trusting this big plan of God. I've got news for you. They haven't seen the other side of history yet. But it is coming. And that's the side of history I want to be on. They can have their speck. I'd rather be with Christ for eternity. Amen. let's trust in the security we have in Jesus Christ and not get sucked in to our present evil environments. Then we see that security leads to obedience. He says at the end, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. This is a call, but also a prayer and a trust that we should be faithful but look at the order here. He starts with security and then moves to obedience. We tend to switch those. There's a great danger in, make, in getting this backwards and putting obedience before security. We think so often if I've done my devotions and I've given my tithe and I put in time at church, well then God owes it to me to be good to me. My obedience should lead to my security. Now there's, Two real big problems I see with that. One is that we think we can manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. And that's just wrong. The other is that when things aren't going bad, you can have a tendency to blame yourself. Either you're going to look at yourself and say, well, I must not be good enough. I need to be good more. I need to be better so that I can have that security. Or you start blaming God and saying, well, I was faithful and he let down his end of the argument or the agreement. But it's just the opposite. Security should lead to obedience. The psalmist trusts in God's security and in God's plan. He's already declared that. As a nation, they've declared that together. And they say, because of that, we know that the Lord is good to those who are good. We know that His justice will prevail. And we will continue to obey Him and to be faithful. Which leads to the future hope of Psalm 126. Look at Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Look at the future hope here. This psalm ends with a looking to the future and having hope. But it begins, sort of like Psalm 124 did, with looking into the past. And I love the words that are used to describe this. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. They're looking back at God's deliverance and they are overwhelmed with joy because of it. Do you ever get overwhelmed with joy looking at what God has done? I think we are kind of the what if sort of people or the yeah but sort of people. Oh, God did great things here. It was really great. Yeah, but it's not good now. Or yeah, but he's not doing that now. Yeah, but I don't know what he's going to do right now and how he's going to fix this situation. We always have a condition. I hope and pray that we can be people that look back and celebrate what God has done and have that joy. The future hope is based on God's past faithfulness. Future hope trusts God to fulfill his promises. Look at verses 4 through 6. They try, they, they call out. In, in trust, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. They're trusting that God will do what He has said He will do. These promises that were given to them so long ago, for us, maybe these promises that you, you trusted in as a child and you came to know Christ, or maybe 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago as an adult and you trusted in Jesus Christ, but it's, going dif- it's not going well and it's tough. Look at the difficulty here. Verse 5, they sow with tears. Verse 6, they go out weeping. These are acts of obedient trust in the midst of great difficulty. This is the picture of a farmer saying, I don't see rain. I don't see any possibility of my crop growing. I am weeping over the fact that I may not be able to provide for my family, but I am trusting in the God who sends the rain. So even in my weeping, I will sow my seed, even if it makes no sense. And look at that first phrase in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is simply the desert. It was a harsh and brutal place. It was a place where things just didn't grow because it was so dry and so hot. But in the Negev, there were these streams called wadis. And basically, they were seasonal streams. And what would happen is this area of the desert that looked beyond hope and absolutely inhabitable, when a certain season came, water would begin to run through it. And in that moment, when the water ran through it, seeds that were sitting dormant under the surface would sprout. And it would go from this dry, barren, dusty desert to a green area where the farmers could plant and sow and reap their crops. And so that it's a picture of somebody saying, I don't see the water now, but I know the God who sends the water. So even if I have to do this with tears, I will trust in the God who brings streams to the desert. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that picture of God that is so sovereign, so powerful, so involved, so omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, that He is involved and knows what's going on and has the power and is at work. And yet in the moment of us going out to sow our seed, in the moment of us saying, I have to be a mom or a dad or a coworker or a boss or whatever it is. And I see no hope in it whatsoever. But I know My God is doing things I'm not even aware of. And His promises never, ever fail. Go on sowing, even with tears. Go on carrying that seed, even if you're weeping while you're doing it. God's faithfulness will prevail, even in the driest of deserts. All of this is based on trust in God. Trust in who God is and what He is doing. I want to be very careful that you don't take what I'm saying to mean that if you do the right things, God will just bless whatever you want. That's not what this is about. This is God blessing what He wants. God will always fulfill His purposes. The victory is God's plans, not our plans. Look, I will never know the feeling of walking out from the Olympic Stadium uh, into the Olympic field at the opening ceremonies. Those days of my life are past. They never actually existed, but they're definitely past now, so I can feel better about that. I'm guessing, in general, most of you will never have that experience either. Maybe some. And I can't imagine what it is like to have, in that moment, so much to look back on so much to experience right now in the present, so much to think about, be nervous about, but also to look forward to in the future. I can't imagine what they go through in that moment. But here's the thing. As a Christian, every single moment you are alive is greater than the moment that those athletes are going through. Because you stand right now looking back on God's past history. You stand right now in the presence of what God is doing in your life and in our world. And you stand right now looking forward to the future that Christ is returning and will reign forever and ever. And you know what? If that causes you to weep, then amen. If that causes you to shout with joy, then amen. But I hope more than anything, it causes you to keep on trusting Keep on following who God is and what he's doing in your life and in this world. As you look back at these trail markers, your past, your present, God's future along the way in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, these are big promises that you give us and in the day-to-day affairs of our lives and the difficulties and the dryness and the barrenness of what we might be going through, it's so easy to lose sight of these things. But you are a God that sends streams in the desert. That is not hard for you. You do it all the time. And we need to be people that have a big enough view of history, past, present, and future, to say, I will sow, even if it doesn't seem to make sense right now, I will trust God, may we know your past work. Certainly at the cross as we're about to celebrate with communion, but I hope also in our own lives and in the lives of people around us, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to say you are a great God that has done amazing things that have brought us to this point. And I pray right now in our present time, we would see that our security is in you. You are greater than anything that comes against us. And I pray as we look to our future, we would know that you are faithful. Your promises will be fulfilled because you are a great and mighty God. And I pray you would teach us, instruct us, and shape and fashion within us a great and mighty faith in you. A faith that would overflow in obedience. A faith that would overflow in worship. And a faith that would overflow in pointing other people to Jesus Christ.